Hello and welcome to today's podcast from the Video Journal of Neurology. Video Neurology is an independent, open access video journal that provides healthcare professionals with the latest news from global congresses through innovative digital media. Today's episode is dedicated to the state of biomarkers in multiple sclerosis. We will be joined by world-leading experts in the field who will share findings from recent studies investigating both serum and TSF biomarkers to monitor disease progression, outcomes and treatment response. First up, Elias Sortichos from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine will describe an ongoing study examining the agreement between published reference methods for serum NFL applied to a large population of people with MS. So just to provide some background, um, serum and neurofilament light chain is an emerging biomarker of neuroaxonal injury and neurological disease. So neurofilaments are neuron-specific cytoskeletal proteins, and they're released into the extracellular space when a neuron is and their axon is is damaged. And recently developed immunoassays that are highly sensitive allow us to detect these proteins in the blood of people with neurological diseases. So serum neurofilament light chain is a is is a, there's a lot of interest in serum neurofilament light chain as a biomarker in this context. But one of the important things is to establish reference ranges in order to be able to determine what is within a normal range and what is an abnormal value for neurofilament light chain. And one of the important challenges is that neurofilament light chain increases with age. Um, so this is very well described. And so you can't just have a, a uniform reference range. It needs to be age-specific to some extent. And so based on, um, on this, there have been a number of reference ranges proposed in. Um, and in this study, we aim to assess the agreement between six published reference methods um, applied to a large population of people with MS. So we measured neurofilament light chain in about 7,000 people with MS. And this was a, this is a longitudinal study that is ongoing. And so we had 13,000 um, blood samples and neurofilament light chain values. And we assessed when applying um, these normative cutoffs from six different reference databases, what proportion of the population was classified as having abnormally elevated NFL. And this was based on a 95th percentile cutoff based on the controls. And these each reference database utilized a little bit of different methods kind of to adjust for age, but all of them did take age into account in the calculation. And so what we found was very, very interesting, and it was that there were markedly discrepant results um, when applying different reference populations. So the proportion of NFL values that was classified as being abnormally elevated ranged from 3.7% to 30.9%. And I think that this is very important, especially now that we're NFL is actually available for measurement um, uh, commercially, and so people can can start ordering this test. And uh, this this uh, raises the importance of caution in interpreting, especially a single NFL result, and the importance of accounting for additional factors. And so, one of the issues here is that these were all kind of somewhat different populations that had been um, in which these reference um, ranges had been determined. And very importantly, in addition to age, there are other factors that are associated with elevated NFL, including comorbidities such as renal dysfunction, uh, diabetes, um, smoking, alcohol use. And so it is important to determine also if the, the um, population from which the reference range has been derived is actually representative 
of the population that you are studying, the population with a neurological disease. One additional issue also that I think is very important is the, the method of measurement here. So we, all of these reference ranges um, are not on the same platform. So there are a few different platforms that are used for measuring um, neurofamily chain. And also the biological matrix in which NFL can be measured can be either plasma or serum. And the values are a little bit different. So serum generally has been reported to have higher NFL values than in plasma. We had a large number of patients who had samples measured with both um, in both serum and plasma and with different um, uh, measurement platforms as well. And so we were able to convert between the two, but that might be an additional factor contributing to the variability here. The fact that all these reference ranges have not been um, determined in the same biological matrix and measurement platform. And that is another important kind of future direction that uh, moving forward, we need to better um, better understand how platforms and how biological matrices matrices may differ and ensure a standardized procedure for measuring and reporting NFL and making sure that we have an interlaboratory um, uh, conversion that is accurate as well. Next, Farhan Qureshi from Octav will discuss findings from a study looking to identify serum biomarkers associated with radiographic indicators of progression independent of relapse activity. So this was a study that was conducted in collaboration with Dr. Jens Kule and his research group at the University Hospital Basel. This is a long-standing partnership we've had with them, um, and we've run many studies with them over the years that have been reported previously at Actrums and Ectrums. Uh, disease progression is currently measured in a mostly qualitative way using clinical and radiographic evaluation. So we were seeking to evaluate progression from a biological perspective using serum proteins. MS is a very heterogeneous disease and disease progression is very complex. There's various subtypes and phenotypes of disease progression. Furthermore, it typically manifests over longer periods of time versus um, disease activity. There's been a great deal of focus in the field of late on the concepts of PIRA and RAW. So PIRA being progression independent of relapse activity and RAW being relapse associated worsening. In this study, we sought to identify biomarkers that were associated with radiographic indicators of PIRA. And thanks to our collaborators at University Hospital Basel, we were able to access a very carefully curated set of samples from 37 patients that represented two carefully matched phenotypically extreme groups, worsening progressive MS, and then stable MS for comparison. And notably, the patients with worsening progressive MS had no relapses during the follow-up period, and so therefore they represent pure PIRA. We also analyzed additional assays that are available using the O-Link proteomics platform. Uh, in total, we measured almost 3,000 protein analytes, and we used NFL and GFAP measured by Samoa, as well as our custom assay panel. These are two biomarkers for which there's a lot of focus in the field as disease activity and disease progression biomarkers. We use those as benchmarks to evaluate associations relative to both gray matter volume and white matter volume. These are two MRI endpoints that are associated with disease progression. We had previously reported associations of our serum protein biomarkers with clinical endpoints of progression at Ectrums in October 2022 from the same data set. So after running the assays, we applied stringent analytical QC to the proteins, and we were left with just over 2,000 analytes. And we found 
more than 60 proteins measured at baseline that had prognostic potential to predict gray matter or white matter atrophy that were as significant or greater than NFL or GFAP. Interestingly, the largest effect size were seen in proteins that are primarily expressed in the CNS. Um, this is an important aspect of the work we've done at Octave, which is focusing on biological corroboration of our findings. So whereas it's important to establish statistical association with the endpoints, it's also critical that we understand the rationale for why that protein was associated with MS. In other words, what cell types, what pathways, and what mechanisms are involved. Yeah. Work is already underway to verify these findings in additional cohorts. And additionally, we want to investigate multivariate algorithms that leverage multiple proteins to potentially enhance the signal. It's similar to what we have validated for disease activity using the MSDA test, we believe that a multi-protein approach will have stronger significance for disease progression endpoints than any individual protein by itself. MS and particularly disease progression are complex and heterogeneous. Developing accurate endpoints that allow us to predict the likelihood, the extent, and the rate or velocity of progression is still very much an unmet need in MS care. Right now, disease activity is better controlled with modern uh, DMTs versus disease progression. So addressing disease progression is in some ways the next frontier in MS therapeutics. I think the two most important benefits are one, establishing accurate and precise measurements of disease progression for use in clinical trials to evaluate efficacy of DMTs specifically related to PIRA, uh, progression independent of relapse activity. And number two, clinical use of these tools to enable a personalized medicine approach in which the right DMT is selected for a patient based on their future risk of progression. It's likely that finding the right endpoints for these purposes will require a multimodal approach. So by integrating biological biomarkers, neuroimaging, and clinical measurements together, that's really the octave approach. And we have programs in each of these domains that we are working on and several that are commercially available. Finally, Shane Arsenault from Memorial University of Newfoundland will share the results from a study investigating how disease-modifying treatments affect B-cells and T-cells and how those levels are related to NFL. I did this research with uh, one of the Tier 2 Canada Research Chair, uh, neuroimmunologist Dr. Craig Moore. So the work was done through his lab. So uh, basically the whole idea was that we know that, you know, Basically, MS is really thought of traditionally as a T cell mediated disorder. Uh, but over the last, you know, say 10, 15 years, even uh, the role of B cell therapy has really elucidated the fact that, you know, B cells play a major role in the pathogenesis of both the inflammatory and the neurodegenerative components of the disease. So, what we were interested in looking at was how uh, disease modifying therapies affected uh, both all these immune cell subsets, T cells, B cells, uh, even things like in the innate immune system, such as natural killer cells, and how those levels uh, were related to uh, neurofilament light. Uh, and just for a bit of background, I'm sure most people here know, but neurofilament light has really come up as a huge uh, front runner for a potential biomarker to measure uh, prognostic indications and uh, DMT responsiveness in MS uh, in all subtypes. So we can measure that in the CSF and more recently as well, uh, very accurately uh, in the serum. So we wanted to kind of tie all those things together. How is serum, uh, sorry, CSF neurofilament light related to 
the T cells, B cells, and whatnot in CSF. Uh, and overall, essentially what we found, uh, now again, it's a small study, so it's kind of a, a proof of concept, uh, and we're hoping to recruit more people over time. But essentially, we proved that uh, CD8 uh, positive cytotoxic T cells, CD4 positive uh, T cells as well, in addition to CD19, uh, CD20 positive, or sorry, CD19 positive B cells, all uh, basically all those levels return near to baseline of non-inflammatory controls uh, when um, given disease modifying therapy of any kind, um, and that these levels are very highly correlated with the uh, CSF neurofilament light chain uh, levels that that we see. So we see that they're highly correlated, and that they both all kind of dampen down in response to the DMT. Uh, we group people. Uh, basically, there was uh, our interventional group was anyone who's diagnosed with relapsing and admitting multiple sclerosis on any DMT. We had to do that because, again, we're a smaller university. We don't have as many patients to be able to group them by high efficacy, moderate, and low. Uh, but basically, anybody uh, that was on any DMT uh, showed these results. Uh, and we had three different control groups as well. So we had our non-inflammatory controls that were CNS disease. Uh, we also had inflammatory controls uh, where they had you know other neuroinflammatory disorders uh, that were inflammatory, which is not MS. And then we had our healthy controls uh, as well. So we did that to make sure that we elucidated the uh, specific neuroinflammatory measures in MS. Overall, uh, essentially what we I give you some of the kind of specific results, what we did find is that, uh, as I mentioned, CD4 positive and CD8 positive T cells are, we found that those were elevated in our cohort in patients who were untreated relapsing remitting. So we have our untreated relapsing remitting are treated on any DMT. And then the other two controls being the healthy, or sorry, the non-inflammatory uh, neuro neurological disease and the inflammatory. So the CD4 and CD8 uh, were elevated in the untreated. And that's uh, basically uh, what we then see is that those levels will normalize with any DMT. So most of the patients that we had in this cohort, uh, it was a combination. It could have been teraflunamide, fungolamide, uh, dimethyl fumarate, and then a couple on the higher uh, efficacy medications like our B-cell depleting ocrevus or acosimpta. Uh, uh, and then we also demonstrated that the, the level of CD19 positive B cells uh, and CD56 natural killer cells, uh, those were also elevated, but those normalized with DMT. So we thought that was interesting as well because CD uh, natural killer cells are part of the innate immune system. So there was also a bit of a role there where you know, it wasn't typically thought to impact the innate immune system. It was more adaptive, but we do see uh, some innate immunity uh, being affected there as well. And the natural killer cells could... Uh, compound the effect, um, uh, the pro-inflammatory cytokine response that we see in the adaptive immune system. So that was interesting. And as well, of course, um, right, the CD19 positive B cells and the natural killer cells were positively correlated with the CSF NFL, like I said. Uh, so as we saw the levels of B cells and the level of these natural killer cells rise, we saw the CSF NFL come up. So they're very positively associated. And then uh, lastly, what we found is that the leukocytes, uh, as well as the B cells and the CSF NFL were all correlated negatively uh, with the number of months since the most recent relapse. So essentially, the further away you were from an actual clinical relapse, then the lower the levels of all these. So we can kind of time associate that all these go up with the relapse, disease activity, neural inflammation, everything rises and then everything goes down as we go move away or as we institute treatment. Those were all the updates we had for you today, so thank you so much for tuning in. 
We hope you enjoyed listening to today's podcast and if you found it useful, we would love if you could leave a review. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app, including Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter at VGenerology to join in the conversation. You can also visit VGenerology.com for the latest updates in the field. See you next time.